Kia ora from Victoria University of Wellington. Our podcast gives you the chance to catch up with our academics and guest speakers who lead thinking on the big questions facing society. Victoria University of Wellington. Capital thinking, globally minded. Um, so yeah, thank you all um, so much for coming. This is the first of our um, alumni series, um, Te Hopana Mai, which is the return. And so a really special thanks to those who've come from beyond the school here to sort of support this um, new little um, innovation of ours. Um, so this series is essentially hosted by the Culture and Context Programme, um, but over the period of time we will look at um, alumni from all our programmes. Um, and essentially for this year what we've set um, for the theme for all of those alumni is social innovation versus commercial innovation, which is something that all of us will face as designers in terms of how we approach things, the consequences that um, we either deal with or that we make um, as we move forward. Um, so I'm very excited to have um, Kellyanne here with us today. Um, and just a little bit of a background, she doesn't look very old, but... Um, none of you were here when Kellyanne was going through and Kellyanne for us was one of those students whose work was always a surprise, it was always a delight. Um, often the work was very gentle but had so much to offer within it um, and this approach I think Kellyanne has continued through, through her work um, and her work impacted all the disciplines although she's a graduate of the C plus C programme. Um, I think if you ask any of your lecturers they'll all be able to tell you a project that um, Kellyanne had worked on and the impact that it had for them. Um, and I think one of the really interesting parts of Kellyanne's work, um, she graduated in 2011, um, was that she was already talking about and working with empathy in her design work, which at the time was really just being whispered about within the design profession. Um, and I think that's held her in incredibly good stead in the wonderful career path that she's carving out. So I'm going to I've used all my superlatives, but she's fantastic. Um, and I'm going to let her show you how fantastic she is and her work is. Um, all yours. Tēnā koutou katoa, nā mihi kua mihia ki te mana whenua, tēnā koutou. Ki ngā kaiako, tēnā koutou. Ki ngā tau ira, tēnā koutou. Ki a koe nen, tēnā hoki koe. Nō reira, ko Kellyanne Cunningham, tuku ingoa, ko Taranaki, te maunga, ko Waiwaka Iho, te awa, ko Nga Te Pākia, te iwi, hi kaimahi ahau, ki Innovate Change. Thank you so much, Nan, for that beautiful welcome. I didn't know any of those things, so that's all wonderful. Um, good evening. It's a real treat to be here, and thank you for coming out on what is probably a little bit of a chilly Wellington evening to hear me talk about social innovation. Um, I am Kellyanne Cunningham. I used to be called Makircha before I was married. Um, I am a participatory designer, a researcher, and a teacher with Innovate Change. I live in Pukitapapa, Tamaki Makoto, with my husband Aaron and this guy. Um, <laughs> this is Winston Chorizo. He's a miniature sausage dog. Um, and fortunately, he doesn't wear the bun costume very often, but sometimes with special occasions he does. Um, more seriously, I grew up in rural Taranaki, um, at the base of the Maunga in a tiny little town called Egmont Village. Um, if you've been there, 
you probably don't remember. It's sort of got a petrol station, a school. You drive through it in a couple of minutes. When I was doing some Googling, this is what came up. This is the petrol station. Um, I think this is probably not true um, and probably the most exciting thing that Egmont Village has on offer. Um, more seriously, uh, Nan has asked that I share a little about myself, my work and my practice of design for social innovation. Um, I have some specific things I want to talk about, but I encourage you to write down any questions or comments you might have as we'll have some time for that afterwards. I'm currently the design lead at Innovate Change. Innovate Change is a social change agency. We use creative and participatory methods to grow social connectedness that enables positive youth development, final well-being and positive ageing. Um, before I worked at Innovate Change, I worked with PwC Digital and Optimal Experience. That was an experience design agency that got swallowed up slash acquired by PricewaterhouseCoopers. Um, in my previous work, I worked as an experience designer and a service designer um, and did lots of work for lots of our um, largest public and private sector organisations in New Zealand. Some of that involved lots of hours in dairy farms with farmers in their cow sheds talking about um, technological innovation for farms. And while I was at Optimal Experience, um, that was around five years ago, we were really focused on getting things up to scratch. So we wanted them to be usable, we wanted them to be desirable, um, and we were only really, I guess, dabbling in social innovation. Social innovation wasn't something that was very um, common in Aotearoa, and it definitely wasn't common to us. And to say I've learned lots about social innovation is a little bit of an understatement. Um, I can only thank, really, my colleagues who I'm currently working with and all of the people along the way that have told me about the nature of their lives. And sometimes the nature of those lives are, are difficult and complex. Um, whether it's people in communities or the people working with people in communities. So at Innovate Change, um, we care really deeply about what we call participatory methods. That's just a fancy way of saying working more closely and inclusively with people. Um, we care that the identification of problems are done by the people who actually experience the problem, that they name it in their words. Um, as well as the people who experience the challenge being the ones who generate the solutions for themselves. And when they do that, we know that when people are involved in the design, the development and the delivery, that solutions are way more meaningful and they work much, much better for the people they're intended to serve. We work lots with government departments. I know that doesn't sound very exciting, but it often is. Um, district health boards, councils and the community sector. Um, and we work solely for social impact, social being social issues, not social media, um, mainly in the health and social care sectors. Uh, we're a social business and we're not for profits. So that basically means any money we get, we reinvest back into our mission of growing social connectedness. And I did obviously make a little bit of a career change from commercial innovation to social innovation, hence why I can talk about both those things today. Um, and really that comes out of a deep desire to see people who experience unacceptable levels of disparity experience that less. Um, my own family, my neighbours, people I've met along the way who have told me their stories, as well as people I haven't met but I care for regardless. So as promised on the advertisement, as Nan said, I'm going to talk a little bit about how I think commercial innovation and social innovation differ. 
So before we go too far talking about social innovation, it might be helpful to set up a bit of a definition. Um, so we define social innovation as the process of designing, developing and implementing services, systems, policies, anything that works to address an unmet social need. It's not always about big ideas or new ideas, but it's about ideas that work. So social innovation also isn't about doing an idea or having an idea, but building the capacity within individuals and communities to be actively solving their own challenges as they experience them. So while we have tons of methods, and all designers, I think, probably like methods quite a lot, um, all of our work is guided by our mindsets for social innovation. So mindsets are our way of being, whereas methods are our way of doing. Our ways of being, our mindsets, add value to the methods that we choose to use. Our mindsets are our kawa, our protocol, and our kupu, our language. So they don't only guide us in our practice, but they guide our project partners as well. There are five mindsets which we've developed and refined over time. Each of the mindsets have a whakatoki that goes with them. Um, to briefly touch on them, curiosity um, is something that as we get more expert in something, we tend to lose quite a lot. The more we know about a subject, the less curious we tend to get. And sometimes we use our expertise as a way of hiding from curiosity. So we say things like, oh, we don't need to talk to those people, we already know all about them. We've worked with them for years and years and years. So curiosity invites us to become less calcified as we grow in our practice and continue being just as curious as we were when we first started that practice. The second one, learning by doing, is a way that we set social innovation apart from more traditional health and social care planning processes. So typically in the health sector, um, we come up with an idea, we say this is how we're going to fix everything for patients, and we go straight to implementing that idea. And when we do that, we miss the part that allows us to test all of the assumptions that we have about how that thing's going to work and why it's going to work. So that key part of prototyping, of making an idea tangible and experiential and investing as little as possible to learn as much as possible, is a key part of social innovation. The next part, being in the grey, sounds like a terrible and horrible mindset, and in some ways it is. Um, it's the space of not being completely sure what's coming next and being in ambiguity. So when we're doing things like research and discovery, often our impulse, because we get frustrated and overwhelmed, is we want to jump, jump straight to a solution. Or we want to jump straight to making sense out of the data we have in front of us. What being in the grey offers is the opportunity to dwell and observe a little bit more and notice what's new, not just what's similar or the same. People are the experts is something that's often bandied about in human-centred design. We often all say it, but we don't always practice it or bring it to life. Essentially, we're saying that people know their lives, you all know your lives, better than anyone else does. And a key part of social innovation is working with their expertise in a meaningful way so that people can express their own expertise as opposed to being on the receiving end of a designer's expertise. The final one, which also sounds terrible, is willingness to fail. Um, of course, none of us set out to fail when we do a project. That's not our intent. But if we're to be sort of as bold as we need to be, it's pretty common that failure might be sort of hiding around the corner for us. So we're not playing it safe and avoiding failure, but embracing that maybe it comes, maybe we'll learn from it, and that we try to set up our organisational structures in a way that actually allows us to fail and, of course, doesn't harm people's lives while we're doing that.
When I talk about the social innovation process, I'm typically talking about this process. It's not very special or unique. It's a typical innovation approach. Um, the early stages are all about discovering, researching. The third one is all about designing, coming up with concepts, refining, trying and reviewing, uh, putting things into a prototype form, something tangible, testing it out, testing it enough times, iterating it, until we get to the point where it starts to look something like a pilot, where we've invested quite a lot of money and resource into it because we have few assumptions that it works, and we're fairly sure it works. The final stage is all about sustaining, different to commercial innovation and social innovation, we don't always have a stable income stream, so we're often thinking about how can we sustain this innovation in a way that continues to deliver impact and continues to support the people who are running it. So for us, for Innovate Change, across this innovation process, we infuse our knowledge of behaviour change, how people change their behaviour, how they become receptive to new behaviours, as well as tikanga metsure o Māori. So we exist among others who do a lot or a little of what we do, social innovation. I haven't included any government departments or philanthropics up here, but they do a little or a lot of that too. Um, there are also naturally a number of iwi who use kaupapa Māori to innovate, or whatever the language might be, as they have been for many years and far longer than we've been talking about problem solving or design. And in a more kind of global way, while social innovation is relatively new to Aotearoa, it's a practice that's really well developed and tested internationally. So lots of the programs that we have in our public sector, especially in the health sector, grow out of some of these organisations. So in the UK we have Nesta, Dark Matters Laboratories, the Young Foundation, Demos and the Innovation Unit. In Australia we have the Australian Centre for Social Innovation and the Australian arm of the Innovation Unit. Rescue Social Change in the US and Ashoka in Canada. Lots of social innovation and social innovation methodology and mindsets come from one key leader called Jeff Mulgan um, who was the founder of the Young Foundation. There's also this really growing trend in terms of policy innovation, um, recognising that changes in policy, better performing policy, policy informed by people's needs and desires has the potential to make enormous impact in our lives. Often we're sort of tinkering at the edges, we're doing new programmes, we're doing new services, but the underpinning structures that allow us to thrive or prevent us to thrive, maybe we can't change those and policy offers us the opportunity to do that, to change those underpinning opportunities. And academic institutions in particular, like the University of Melbourne, who run this, the policy lab, are really uniquely positioned to sort of side agencies who are doing social innovation work to provide the rigour, the evaluation and the monitoring to make sure that what we're doing with people's lives and often vulnerable lives is making the difference that we want to see. In August, I'll finish my role with Innovate Change um, and take up a new role at the Australian Centre for Social Innovation as one of their principal human-centred designers. It's a fancy way of saying I'll look after a team of social innovators and work on some fairly large-scale projects that have the potential to impact all Australians. One of these projects is the Innovation Age. So this is a million-dollar investment by one of Australia's largest philanthropics to explore the question, how might all Australians thrive despite their financial circumstances? 
these are Australians like Charles, who believes that he will just die driving his cab because he doesn't have any other economic prospects. I'll never forget doing an empathy interview with an older man called Tom, whose biggest treat in life was saving up for two months so he could buy one jar of his favourite jam. And while stories like Tom's and Charles, they kind of crack our hearts right open if they let us, they also provide immense opportunity for us and others to create better social supports. Design, co-creation, empathy and action all do that for us. Projects like the Innovation Age aim to create systemic change, not simply create more programs, more services, or more products. And while those things aren't inherently bad, we don't necessarily need more of them, but sometimes we need those underpinning structures to work better. Things like for older Australians, we might need better reliable rental policies. So when older people are renting, they know they can be safe in their homes as they age. Over the past year, a uh, few years, I've worked on lots of different design-led approaches. I'm going to talk briefly about a few, and then I'll use them as examples as we talk about the difference in commercial and social innovation. So the first one is Harakeke, Parents for Parents. This is in Waitakere, West Auckland. It's an initiative that's for parents, and it's designed by parents. In 2014, the Ministry of Social Development asked us to lead a project to develop community parent-led initiatives that focused on growing positive parenting and reducing child abuse. Initially, we worked with parents of under fives in the community of Waitakere to identify, test and refine innovations that could contribute to an increase in positive parenting and develop protective factors against child abuse. Protective factors are things like having friends, having social support, knowing about child development, parenting confidence, whereas risk factors are things like mental illness, parenting alone, um, living on a low income, domestic violence. Basically, we want to promote the protective factors and reduce the risk factors. So after the design process in late 2014, we implemented an initiative that's completely run by parents. At Innovate Change, we provide sort of the backstage support for our parent leaders to do the work in their communities. The concept of the initiative is really simple. We have 33 parent leaders. Parent leaders are parents who have had challenging experiences in their lives but developed the resilience to be able to support others. They each run a weekly event in their community where they invite other isolated parents to come and join them. And they build those protective factors around friendship and social support. It sounds simple and it kind of sounds a little bit silly, but in an urban setting we have become increasingly isolated from each other. And when you're parenting alone, when you're parenting with complex social issues, you become even more alone. Recently, we've been working with Wesley Community Action to explore new propositions for their residential aged care facility. It's in Naimai. It's called Wesley Haven. The facility is no longer financially viable as it is. It's a rest home and a hospital. So they need, there's a, a need to explore a range of other things that could allow a facility to be economically viable, while at the same time being a place where a range of people can live, work and play. So like much of our work and coming back to our purpose, we're all about growing social connectedness and, increase, and decreasing social isolation. One of the leading propositions that through our prototyping and testing process that looks really promising 
is the idea of a tiny home village on some of the land that's vacant around the aged care facility. The tiny home village wouldn't be a bunch of random strangers living together, but a co-housing community, which means that people actively support their neighbours, their neighbours support them, and there's some level of shared facilities that are available. So um, large cooking, guest rooms, laundry, etc. A couple of years ago, also the Ministry of Social Development asked us to work with young people and youth workers in Kaitaia in the far north to develop um, ideas around preventing bullying of young people. Rather than looking at it as a bullying prevention, we know that young people treat each other better, treat themselves better when they're positively connected to each other. So we focused on how we might grow young people's positive connections with their friends, community, family, school or work. So part of that involved a really speedy week where we got a very old, decrepit building on the main street of Kaitaia and activated it into a youth space that was sort of a pop-up. It ran for two to three days and we could rapidly test whether this was going to be something that could work for Kaitaia and could work for young people. Late last year, Auckland and Waitamata District Health Boards asked us to lead a co-design process to create a new model of care. I'll talk about what that is. And to better support people and families living with type 2 diabetes. In particular, people who are newly diagnosed and those who struggle to manage their condition well without complications. Complications are things like losing sight, losing your feet, not very good. And finally, most of my work at the moment is about coaching other people and organisations to do social innovation. One of the key ways that we can all grow the use of social innovation in Aotearoa is if more people know how to do it and more people do it in their day-to-day -day jobs. I've been working with Healthy Families Far North to get them to have a social innovation practice. Last week we started a project to look at the food system of Kaikohe and how we can bring the nourishment back into a place that has been quite severely undernourished for quite some time. Put simply, a food system is everything from the farm or wherever the food comes from all the way to the plate or it not quite getting to the plate. Healthy Families, in case you haven't heard about it, is a big and brave investment from the Ministry of Health. They want to see social innovation capacity growing in 10 different regions around New Zealand. Those regions are chosen based on their um, socio-economic and health disparity statistics. And they want to see each of these regions create systems that will change in the places they work. So rather than creating new programs, they want to look at what I mentioned before, those underpinning structures. So for example, how food is regulated, how tobacco might be regulated. So they're looking at things like how can less people smoke? How might there be less alcohol-related harm? And how can we promote physical activity and eating healthy, nourishing food? So for this type of work, instead of facilitating the design process, I'm very much in the background and I gently guide and kind of provoke and challenge the team as they go through the design process and learn to use the design process themselves. They are so much better connected to their community than I ever will be and it makes much more sense for them to be in their community localising and adapting the findings and building stronger relationships with people they already know. So, commercial versus social innovation. Um, you might be deceived with the picture I've chosen but I'm not suggesting we sort of duel off or face off commercial and social innovation. They both have things to offer us in the world. But I 
do think it's helpful to know where the boundaries of um, commercial innovation are, where commercial innovation starts and ends, and then where social innovation starts. I think it's important to understand in social innovation what's at stake and how that's so very different to commercial, and therefore what kinds of competencies we might need to be able to work with that productively. There's lots of debate around the similarities or the difference between commercial and social innovation. People say things like, oh, it's just the same way of problem solving, or if you're a designer, surely you can do both. Use the same methods. I was interviewing someone for a job a couple of weeks ago, and they said to me, oh, we're just fooling ourselves if we think they're different. They're really the same. Unsurprisingly, he didn't get the job, um, but it did bring up sort of this bigger issue of the assumptions sometimes we make about things that are in nature actually quite different. And it's, it can be concerning when we assume they're the same because sometimes we don't take the precautions we need to take when it comes to social innovation around cultural competency, around keeping people safe, around the very explicit addressing of disparity which is inherent in social innovation and not in commercial. So if our intent is to create social change, we have to get really honest with ourselves about what we're trying to achieve in the work of social innovation, which is quite different to commercial. In many, many ways, my practice of doing social innovation has been inspired by this question from Christian Penny from Toy Fikari, uh, who asks, how might we encounter each other in new ways that fix each other less, demean each other less, and allow, allow for new potential to emerge? So we'll explore five ways that I know commercial and social innovation differ. And while I'm sure there's lots more, we could argue and debate them, this is what's on top for me. So let's take a pause and consider in your own experiences, whatever they've been, and write down a few things, or if you don't have a piece of paper, you can just think of them, that you think are different between commercial and social innovation. And I'll just ask a few people to share those back just a few minutes. If you want to talk to the person next to you, you're most welcome. So can a few people call out some of the things that are coming up for them? What do you think? Sure. 
One thing to think about in terms of commercial and social is um, in commercial we have different kinds of competitors, so we're competing with other corporates who sell maybe the same thing as us. Um, so maybe if we're providing a telephone or a telephone service, we're competing with Spark, we're competing with Vodafone. When we're doing social innovation, we're competing with other things that make a behaviour hard. So if we're about reducing smoking, we're competing with tobacco companies. We're competing with social norms around how families enjoy themselves, how they drink, how they socialise. Um, we're competing with things that actively work against the behaviour we're trying to see, rather than having a very discreet, direct competitor who's providing the same product or service. So the first one is confronting disparity. Um, in social innovation, we're looking to serve people who have been systemically excluded from decision-making and very much been socialised to be passive recipients of products, um, policies or services. It can feel pretty silly when you're one of those people when someone comes to you and says, do you want to take part in a design process? Do you want to share your ideas? Why don't you work with us? It's really hard to believe that what you say has value or put yourself into that vulnerability when you have a low sense of self-efficacy and you've been taught that when you speak out in the past, it's not a good thing. Maybe it means that you've lost some of your services and supports. So when we are asking people to participate in a design process, we have to be sensitive and mindful of what their experience and their socialisation has been. In social innovation, we're not about designing for everyone. We're looking to radically improve the lives of people who experience the most disparity when it comes to social challenges, whether it be in their health outcomes, their social outcomes or their educational outcomes. While social innovation is really deeply connected to design practice, it's also connected to social justice. So reducing disparity matters because despite all of this talk we have about growing economies, it's actually reducing disparity that allows our communities to thrive most. And while all of us benefit when we improve the experiences for those who fear worse to experience the most disparity, we don't need social innovation equally. In social innovation, we design for extremes. So we design for the people that experience the most barrier and the most disparity. We don't design for mass markets, for early adopters, for tech lovers. Maybe some people who experience disparity are tech lovers. And the thing about extremes is when you have extremes, you find magic, and that magic is called positive deviance. So that's when someone, despite the adverse conditions of their lives, have developed these extraordinary coping strategies that they use to make the best of their situation. And those people always exist in communities. Family by Family from the Australian Centre for Social Innovation is a evidence of that phenomenon of positive deviance. So the model works where... Families who have been through a really tough time, who have kind of gotten out the other side and are a little bit better equipped, a little bit more resilient, support a family who is currently going through a really tough time. It might be that they're bordering on having a child protection notification for one or more of their children. And these, um, what's called thriving families, the families who have learned to cope a little bit better, they support the other family. There's a social worker in the background who's kind of ensuring that everything is safe, but it's very much families as frontline deliverers to other families. The thriving families support the struggling family to develop goals and stick to those goals, as well as increase their parenting skills. 
This all came out of some early conversations that Taxi was having with people where they discovered there was this kind of magic lady who lived on a street, which was kind of a, a bad neighbourhood, I guess. She didn't have a lot of money, a lot of resource, but on her street she was the person that everyone else would go to when they were having a tough time because she had an extraordinary ability to relate to them and to connect them to the services and supports that they needed. There are those ladies on many streets and many places that we can be quite critical of and try to just get professionals and services in there as soon as possible. There's lots of really cool innovation that recognises this thing of peer-to-peer -peer support. We know that peers, that people can often go where services can't. Obviously, you trust your friends probably, then a lot more than you trust other people, than you trust professionals. It's a lot easier to have a conversation with your friend than with a professional sitting on the other side of a desk who maybe looks nothing like you, feels nothing like you, and talks nothing like you. When you ask a community, when you ask people what they want in their life, usually they don't say, you know what, I'd love another service. Many families who experience the most disparity are completely serviced out. In one project I worked with a family who had 30 different agencies that worked with them and their front gate was sort of like an airport with people coming in and out constantly. You can imagine how frustrating it is to be constantly asked the same questions by different people and continue telling your story over and over again. What many families do want and what probably we all want is someone to talk to when we're struggling and a tender and compassionate way of getting our needs met in a way that doesn't demean us and that fixes us less. If we're not confronting disparity, we're not doing social innovation. Whether it's in placemaking, in the built environment, health, social care, reducing driving-related harm, whatever. The goal always has to be reducing the gap. In commercial innovation, there's no requirement to be aware of or address disparity. We don't have to do it. We don't have to increase civic participation and capacity for active decision-making of communities. Sometimes we think about things like how can we take away the barriers so that someone can get a new mobile phone faster or buy their insurance with the least amount of pain possible. But really in commercial innovation do we think about things like how inequality is produced and reproduced. Last year, as I mentioned, we got asked to design a new model of care for diabetes in Auckland. The particular district health board, is, district health board is an entity that basically provides health services to a population like Wellington or Auckland. And the district health board who had asked us to do this project have about a million people that they look after. So they are by far the biggest population in New Zealand. A model of care is a fancy way of saying how health services will be organised so that people can get them in the ways they need them at the times they need them. And we create models of care, hopefully, so that people are more likely to get the care and support they need. When I was working on this project, this woman, Linda, told me that she didn't understand how serious her diabetes was until she lost her foot. Actually, she lost most of her leg, and because of the extent of the amputation, she hasn't been able to have a prosthetic limb. What that means is she basically has been at home for a number of years. She relies on her husband and her adult son to take care of her. Long-term conditions like type 2 diabetes have a massive impact on the lives of people who experience them. 
as well as a big impact on the lives of people who care for them. For carers of people with long-term conditions, a woman, Pauline Boss, explains their experience as ambiguous loss. So it's basically that you have a version of the person that you love. They're still there, the person, but the version that you have loved and cared for has sort of gone away. So your grief is very much ambiguous. It doesn't really ever go away, and you never gain closure. So as you can imagine, caring, especially with this ambiguous loss, has massive kind of physical, emotional, and spiritual impacts on our health. For relationships, diabetes is really problematic. It brings a huge breakdown in intimacy, and it robs people of their kind of energy and zest for life. Another woman I spoke to in this project, Lily, described that on a day-to-day basis, she feels like she lives on the top of a tall tree, and everyone else is walking around having fun without her. And despite having a husband and five children, she feels alone every single day. So Linda lost her foot in 2011, and she's had type 2 diabetes for 20 years. And over the past 20 years, she's faced enormous barriers in getting the care she needs. She feels ashamed when she visited health, visits health professionals. She feels fuck em up, performance managed by health practitioners. Often she's gone to see specialists, and they sort of silence and devalue her questions about her condition. And often, because the health system is so fragmented, her and her husband, who has to take time off work, drive all around Auckland. If you know Auckland, you know how bad the traffic is. Often for days at a time, only to have their appointments cancelled. And if you know hospitals very well, you know that parking is really expensive. So every time you go to a hospital, you pay for parking, your appointment's cancelled. When you have very little money, paying $30 for parking is almost impossible. So if I was to ask you all to develop a model of care to support one of the biggest populations in Aotearoa, Auckland or Waitemata, what would you do? Where would you start? Is there particular people you would start with? A mental health thing, I think. Yeah. And they actually trained all these barbers because they were seeing these people all the time to help them through it. So if there's anywhere that a mass population goes or an identifiable group go, you can always train those people to the best frontline. Yeah. And you're normally really comfortable with their relationship too. Yes. Yeah, it's that peer to peer thing, eh? trust is there, hey? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. What we often get prevented by in social innovation and kind of limits us, and sometimes these are restrictions we place on ourselves, is we think, oh, we have to design for everyone, because everyone is part of this district health board. And sometimes what that means is we wind up supporting the people who already get supported fairly well, and we miss the people like Linda and Lily who still continue to get unsupported. While it sounds obvious and and maybe it doesn't sound completely okay, middle to upper class people usually don't need extra help when it comes to health. They already have the health literacy and the financial means to get the care they need most of the time, not all of the time, but most of the time. 
Linda is Māori. She lives in a deprivation 10 area by the New Zealand Deprivation Index, and she has really poor control of her diabetes, so much poorer than most people. She isn't part of the biggest group affected by diabetes, but she's part of a group that's disproportionately affected. So what would happen if instead of trying to design for everyone, we radically improve care for Linda and people like Linda? How much more impact might we create in reducing disparity if we started there instead of trying to start with designing for everyone? So in this project, we didn't try to design for everyone. We focused on hearing from Linda and people like Linda who experience the biggest barriers when it comes to accessing healthcare. And the magic in that is when we design it for people who are struggling most, it works for people who aren't struggling much at all because we've dealt with the most complex needs first. In commercial innovation, we really focus on extremes. We are um, concerned with things like you were saying around profit. So we go for kind of the mass market, the biggest group of people, um, people who are sort of warmed and primed and ready to go. Whereas in social innovation, we're thinking deliberately about where can we create the most impact, where will that be most transformational, and how can we reduce disparity. Two, methods that exclude. So while we all, I'm sure, have really good intent, Sometimes designers are just as guilty as the people we get commissioned by, the people we criticise for not being human-centred enough or inclusive enough, at designing people in and out of processes. So sometimes we do lots of research up front, maybe we do lots of testing and conversations with ideas, but we leave the ideation, the concept development, the implementation to designers and other professionals because we say things like, oh, well, they're really skilled at that, Right. Sometimes we think we're being what's called user-led when really we're kind of more user-inspired. And sometimes we set up in social innovation, innovation challenges, social labs and innovation funds, which work pretty well in a commercial setting, expecting those people who are the most disconnected will rush forward and participate, which just about never happens. And while these kind of methods are really popular in the commercial world, the people who contribute tend to be those who may not have lived experience or the challenge they're contributing to. Um, and while this is okay as a way of gathering ideas, it doesn't necessarily harness the participation or build the self-esteem of people who are disconnected and may not jump at the opportunity. And actually, if we're trying to unlock solutions for groups like that, we need their participation and we need them to be coming to the table what we don't need so much is the same people with really loud voices to continue to participate, which is what often happens. What is very real for people who are in that kind of passive recipient mode is to feel a deep sense of shame and a deep sense of uh, feeling unable to speak um, for fear of being shamed or what they see or what they say not being good enough or not being received well put it out there and they'll come just doesn't hold up if we're looking to meaningfully engage with those groups. And we'd kind of do well, even though for many of us we're probably quite good at saying our ideas, at sharing, that saying ideas and sharing thoughts does require a level of bravery. And some of us are not ready and have not had our life conditions enable us to get to the point where we are okay being in that vulnerability of speaking out. 
This is a social lab that's happening in Auckland at the moment. As you can imagine, when you're a young, pe young person who has a really low self-esteem, seeing this invitation probably doesn't make you think, oh, I'd be really good at that. I'm going to ring them up and see if I can participate. Rather, it often brings that same sense of shame and same sense of inclusion. So what do we need? Instead of doing a design process of expecting people to come forward to us with their ideas, there's a whole bunch of work we have to do before. Um, in another world, it's often called positive youth development. It means that we are building young people's sense of self-efficacy and self-worth. So the point isn't that they pitch an idea, but that they grow themselves and they grow their connections to each other. And then maybe they participate, maybe they share ideas. But we have to recognise that for many young people who experience disparity and complex social challenges, they're not at the point where they're going to click on a website, sign themselves up and rush forward. And that's one way that social innovation and commercial are really different. In social innovation, in that design process I showed you at the start, we're looking to build capacity of people all the way through so that when we start to get to the point of having solutions, people are sort of primed and ready to take those solutions on themselves. Whereas in commercial innovation, often it's a designer running the process. Um, and by the stage we get to an idea, we try to hand that idea over in commercial innovation, it just doesn't work. If we haven't built people's self-esteem and willingness to pick up and adopt that idea, it just doesn't happen. A friend of mine, Sarah, who I went to um, Victoria with, runs Early Childhood Centre in Wellington. They have three principles for their children that come to their centre, which is safe, learning and loved. I don't think designing is very dissimilar at the heart of participatory practice is the opportunity for us to learn about ourselves, to learn about each other, and craft new knowledge together. The opportunity to forge phenomena and connectedness. As human beings, we have to feel safe in order to use the creative centre of our brains. We can't be creative if we don't feel safe. Our brain just hijacks us. And sometimes we feel unsafe due to trauma, feeling a lack of fairness, lack of autonomy, understanding of what we're doing or why, or a pressure to perform in a particular setting. And all of those things don't go away when someone comes to a design session or a design experience. If anything, those feelings of a lack of safety often get amplified because it's a, a strange or a new setting. In commercial innovation, we don't have to often think about people's lives in the same way because our participants, the people helping us and aiding us in the design process, are typically pretty okay most of the time. We don't have to think things like, well, how are they even going to get to the place we're having that thing? Or how will they feel? Or what will they be triggered by in this session that we're going to have? Whereas when we're doing things with people who have experienced complex issues in their lives, feeling unsafe and experiencing trauma is a pretty common thing. And as designers, I wouldn't say we're the best trained to handle people feeling unsafe or people being traumatised. In some ways, designers have kind of walked over into the territory of human services where people like social workers receive an enormous amount of training to be able to support people with complex lives. So if as designers we don't know very much about that, 
how might we learn and who might we be allies of and who might we work alongside in the design process to make sure we're keeping people safe. A lot of the biggest hurdles we have in bringing decision makers, frontline workers, people and families affected by a problem together is time and interest. So with time, we're constrained by busy lives, jobs that are really hard and expensive to get away from, like clinical or healthcare work, and actually a lack of genuine interest for each other's lives. Sometimes that's not two-way, it might be one way. And sometimes bringing together really disparate groups of people together like that, it feels hollow and it fails to generate the thick and strong networks that we need for social change to happen and to be sustained. So thinking back to these principles of the child care centre, how can we ensure that those we're working with are learning about themselves and are learning about each other? How might you love the people that you work with? How can they cultivate a love for one another and the work they have to do together? These are two kind of um, extremes that I've put up here. The one on the left, you've probably seen if you Google design thinking or doing design work. It's a pretty typical go to a session, do some post-it notes, write some ideas. The other one on the other side is a wānanga that my colleague Katarina led in the Waikato at Waikere Murai with young people around the topic of sexual consent. Have a little think about how these settings and these challenges might be different. What would it mean to bring a group of vulnerable young people into a room and put them in front of post-it notes and say, can you write some things around sexual consent? We need a range of conditions and relationships in order to have difficult conversations. And some of the tools of commercial innovation are too blunt and too simple to address some of those conversations. In commercial innovation, we're really bound by our commercial interests. So we have tight budgets, we have tight activities, we want to get what we need from people while making money. That's the reality of business. But those same constraints don't support us very well in commercial innovation, where we need relationships. We need trust and safety to produce difficult conversations and produce solutions that come out of those difficult conversations. So while an hour brainstorming session might be okay to design a new mobile app, seem to be a little bit obsessed with the telephone example. Um, it's not sufficient for developing solutions to complex social challenges. And we're doing ourselves and others a disservice if we come in with overly simplistic methods expecting that they'll do the trick. In commercial innovation, in terms of getting people to participate with us, so we might want to interview them, we might want to test an idea with them, we can rely on recruitment agencies to help us find those people. We can buy them from panels. When we buy people's participation in commercial innovation, usually the outcome of the work is fine. We can still do a vacuum cleaner that people like using. We can still make a phone that people love or make insurance purchasing really easy. In social innovation, you only ever get as much as your trust has bought you. Creating solutions and delivering solutions is deeply linked to how much social capital we build in the design process. Social capital being kind of networks of trust and of willingness. In social innovation, we typically don't and we shouldn't use recruitment agencies. People want to spend their lives in ways that adds value to them and their families, to their communities. Sometimes people want to lead, sometimes they want to be in the background. 
And if we want participation, we have to understand what people's barriers to taking part are and what might benefit them or what might be of value to them. In many ways, designing is an act of reciprocity, of, of giving, receiving, and understanding how we can give back to the people from which we ask something from. And through how we practice design, we either build up that social capital, those networks of trust, or we diminish them. And sometimes we diminish them through doing things like saying, oh, we're going to go and hear all these people's stories, and then we never do anything with the stories. We don't follow through on what people's expectations have been. When we do that, people learn not to trust us, and they learn not to trust the design process. And when we're trying to be human-centred, we need humans in that process if we're to continue producing human-centred and meaningful solutions. In our parenting initiative, Harakeke Parents for Parents, the whole thing wouldn't happen if it wasn't for the parent leaders. They run an hour activity every single week and communicate with many other isolated parents. And while on a month-to-month -month basis they do get a grocery voucher to recognise their time and, and add some food into their family, they spend time with us because it aligns to their personal values. It brings them personal development, leadership opportunities, and we actively do things to show that we and their communities value the work that they do. Last year, when we needed to evaluate the outcomes of the program, we commissioned a local parent who was a documentary filmmaker to tell the story of seven of the parents. To demonstrate we valued them and teach them their communities also value them, we put on this big do. We invited parent leaders and their families, as well as local professionals, local leaders, the mayor, to come and celebrate their work with them. This is some of the parent leaders. They loved it. The community celebrated them, and it helped them connect to what they're achieving for parents and gave them a boost of enthusiasm and inspiration. When you're parenting, when you're not in work, when you have little to no income coming into your family, the opportunity to have a do and be celebrated is quite something special. In terms of the pop-up youth space I talked about before, that couldn't have happened if it wasn't for the trust and generosity of the Kaitaia community. We started out with this horrible, empty, dingy space, and in a few days it was full of colour, artwork, activities, furniture, which we didn't spend any money on at all. Everyone from the community donated what they could to make this happen, and that happened solely through relationships. In Nainai, after our initial research, once we understood the challenges and the opportunities, we ran a community dinner to invite local people to work with us on what some of the opportunities and possibilities might be. To drive community solutions forward, you need the community to be willing, and there's no better way to achieve that than if they feel like they've owned the design process, that they were the ones who had the ideas and that they're the ones who will take the ideas forward. Dining, the act of sharing a meal together, is very much an act of reciprocity. We didn't make people do design the whole dinner. Between each course, they were asked to do something around designing. And while they were eating their food, they had the chance to grow social connections with each other. Social innovation can't happen without the participation of others, and that participation is very hard to buy and can only be bought through trust. And finally, people are the experts, really. We say that people know their lives better than anyone else, but as designers, our actions don't always support that. I talked about designing people in and out of processes, 
kind of hiding away parts of the design process because they're sort of too special. And I don't know if the goal of co-design and participatory design is that we get really good at participation, that we have the very best and most inclusive methods. But rather, I think it's bringing this to life that people are the experts. So in our usual lives, when someone's an expert, you give them a job and you pay them money for being an expert. So I think that is the role in social innovation, that we give people jobs, meaningful jobs to do. We pay them accordingly. We don't design them in and out of processes, hide away in our office. And we don't use excuses like, oh, that's what designers are good at, or those people aren't smart enough to do that, or they don't have time, or building their capacity would take too much time and too much effort. Building capacity is the work of social innovation. For co-design to be really genuine, I think we need to give people jobs where there is interest and willingness. Not all people want to have a job to play a really significant part in the social innovation process, but many do when they're asked. I guess in many ways too different from commercial innovation is that we have an obligation to work meaningfully with Māori to bring to life te tiriti o waitangi and hold on to a bicultural design practice. And sharing our design practice with others is a surefire way of keeping ourselves accountable. Commercial innovation brings no requirement to build the capacity of others to share our designerly toys, while in social innovation, building the capacity of others enriches their life beyond the project, often gives them practical and tangible skills to use in their lives and work. It enriches our solutions, adds value to them, and helps to build a willingness and an ability for communities to actively deliver their own solutions. So together, our initial insights for Harakiki, Parents for Parents, the design of that initiative, we recruited 11 parents and we trained every single one of them uh, to be an insight gatherer. So to go out and have an empathy-led conversation with other parents in their communities. We do this often as a method all the way through the design process. These parents are able to connect to parents that we probably never would be that wouldn't really want us in their homes. We don't speak the same language. Um, we don't worry about the same things. And because things like parenting are highly um, charged with judgment and emotion, it's easier to say things, hard things, and things that might incur judgment to your friends than it is to a professional or researcher, no matter how kind or lovely you might be. So Jeff French and Ross Gordon in their book Strategic Social Marketing sum brilliantly our intent in thinking about increasing agency, decision making and the role of citizens in generating their own solutions. They say converting citizens from being passive recipients of social programs in systems that deny them both the power and the responsibility to being active co-creators of their own and societal well-being. Designers can't go at it alone. Design expertise is needed along content knowledge, so ageing, child protection, health, youth development, these are all rich disciplines in their own right. And experts through lived experience, people who know this challenge in their bodies and in their lives. And some of the most powerful social innovations come out of teams where they have all of those roles working together as a team. But the designer isn't sort of the the hero of the process, but they provide some really valuable process knowledge. 
We have to remember that design isn't magic, it's craft, it's learned and refined. And designers are just as likely to change the world as anyone else. And what is always welcome and always needed in working alongside communities is humility and skill and knowing your worth but not being sort of brazen or arrogant with that worth. It's good to be gentle and tender, never blunt and arrogant. Communities haven't been waiting for design. They've been doing lots of good work, and it's hard. And we have to very much care for ourselves and each other while we're doing this work. When we show up to social innovation, we're showing up to be of service, just like any other public servant might. To be part of a team and to bring what's so special about design, which is optimism and hope, which other disciplines don't always bring to the table. And what is also so special about design is we can see and re-see the, the world in new and different perspectives. It's not enough in social innovation to say, oh, we just bring the process and design is enough. It's not. Complex challenges need and deserve more than that. Design is a, a vital role, but it must exist alongside other roles and other wisdoms. We need empathy for people who experience challenges, and we need empathy for people that work in systems that are really hard to work in. So to summarise, social innovation must confront disparity. We do that by focusing our attention on those who need it most, not trying to design for everyone. Secondly, while well-meaning, we sometimes use methods from the commercial marketing playbook that exclude that don't develop people's self-efficacy and prevent their full participation. Thirdly, co-design is about keeping people safe, learning and loved. This means working alongside those who experience the challenge in their bodies and their lives, as well as those who deliver solutions on the front line. We have to make sure that we're keeping people safe so they can use the creative centre of their brains. Fourth, in commercial innovation, we can buy people's participation. In social innovation, we only ever get as much as our trust has bought us. Finally, recognising people as experts means recognising their expertise and the ways we get ours recognised. Jobs, payment, recognition as legitimate and needed members of a design team. So coming back to this provocation, how might we encounter each other in new ways that fix each other less, demean each other less and allow for new potential to emerge. It's been a real pleasure and an honour to be there, to be here. Thank you all for coming out and for staying. Um, and thank you, Nan, for your very gracious invitation. Namahi nui ki koutou katoa. Stay up to date with the latest cutting-edge research from Victoria University of Wellington. Subscribe now through iTunes, Stitcher or your favourite podcast provider. Thanks to Te Koki New Zealand School of Music alumni Kenyon Shanky and Stephen Patton for the use of their music. Victoria University of Wellington. Capital thinking, globally minded.